All right, we are back. And before we take the plunge back into the matter of the deep state, I want to take a slight detour into the matter of the Oroville Dam. The authorities here in California are assuring us that they they might have it fixed by next fall. Well, they think they can anyway. But uh, I want to cite an editorial that appeared in the, uh, the East Bay Times about this topic. For some reason, the Sacramento Bee doesn't seem to be covering this as aggressively as they might. The people in the Bay Area, a little further afield than the Department of uh, Water Resources, are tend to be a little more critical. I want to quote from the editorial as follows. The confounding statements from the State Department of Water Resources about the Lake Oroville spillway crisis just keep coming. The disaster has been a public relations nightmare from the beginning. But the DWR keeps making matters worse with its words and actions. As the repair bill for the crumbling spillway and the emergency response approached $200 million last week, DWR Acting Director Bill Croyle, who has exhibited a troublesome tendency to downplay the incident since it started on February 7th, used an inappropriate analogy when asked at a press conference whether the crisis could have been prevented and who was responsible. Quote, this happened. Stuff happens, he said. So you get your flat tire on your car, you run your car out of oil. I mean, these things happen. We're going to get into how it happened, why this happened. Noted the editors, well, first, it's a good idea to top your oil off when it's low and changing tires when they're worn, so something like the crumbling of a spillway shouldn't be treated as an inevitability by the agency that supposedly managed it. If that's the case, a lot of people living downstream of dams in California have plenty of good reasons to worry. Second, now would be a good time to study the how and why, not later. The state is obviously trying to craft some permanent fixes on the dam right now, and it seems it would want such answers quickly. Another confounding stance for the DWR came when this newspaper told the agency we had photos taken weeks before the spillway started to fall apart that showed possible damage to it in the very area where it started to crumble. You'd think the DWR and its engineers would want to investigate the photos. They didn't ask to see them. Instead, they emailed a cover your ass, they said cover your tail statement, but I like ass better, saying the dam was frequently inspected by multiple state and federal agencies and said that later a panel of independent experts would investigate the causes of the spillway failure. None of the editors, hmm, perhaps those independent experts will want to look at the smoking gun photos. They noted the day after that blockbuster article and photos appeared, workers scaffolding lights and equipment were set up on the spillway itself. That scene caught our eyes. Why? Because in the previous day's article, we asked whether DWR inspections included people actually walking on the huge spillway to examine the cracks and chasms. DWR said it couldn't conduct an on-the-spillway inspection when water was behind the gates at the top of the spillway. That was called typical DWR safety protocol. So the typical protocol is invoked when they don't want to do the work, but invoked once they're embarrassed. None of this engenders public confidence in DWR's ability to adequately handle such a crisis. And indeed it doesn't. All right, let's go back into talking about the deep state. We're indebted to Professor Peter Dale Scott for what will follow here because he's been posting some very interesting pieces on his Facebook site. 
including this one from the Uns Review, which is certainly a, an alternative media site. But we would like to certify as being significantly less fantasy-oriented than what we just read from the Washington Post. To quote from the piece by Jack Ravenwood in the Uns Review, there's a lot of talk these days about the deep state, especially among supporters of President Trump, some of whom believe that this deep state is working hard to destroy anyone loyal to Trump, both inside and outside the government, and ultimately Trump himself. General Flynn was forced to resign after a media scandal surrounding his contacts with Russian ambassadors, a scandal which by most accounts was exaggerated. After Flint's resignation, prominent neoconservative and never-Trumper Bill Kristol tweeted, Obviously, strongly prefer normal democratic and constitutional politics, but if it comes to this, prefer the deep state to the Trump state. Incidentally, that induced a firestorm of criticism from people like Glenn Greenwald and David Talbot. They took the position, well, at least the Trump administration is something that's duly elected, which, frankly, we have our doubts about. The article goes on to note that the deep state is aptly summed up by journalist Jefferson Morley in a recent article at Alternet. Said Morley, the deep state is shorthand for the nexus of secretive intelligence agencies whose leaders and policies are not much affected by changes in the White House. While definitions vary, the deep state includes the CIA, NSA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and components of the State Department, Justice Department, Department of Homeland Security, and the Armed Forces. We very much respect Jefferson Morley and have had him on this program in the past, but we think in this case the definition should be expanded into the likes of prominent Wall Street interests and surely the oil industry as well. Author Ravenwood goes on to make some comparisons, oddly enough, between JFK and Donald Trump. I can't say as I agree with all of his statements, but some of it's pretty provocative, and I think I'll quote from it. Noted Ravenwood, although Kennedy was elected in 1960 as a cold warrior, he moved away from a hardline stance almost immediately after being elected. In 1961, he refused to provide U.S. military support to the CIA's bungled Bay of Pigs invasion, something that many in the CIA never forgave him for. In 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy negotiated peace with Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev. This was against much of the advice coming from the deep state. He notes that in 1963, just months before his death, President Kennedy gave a historic speech at American University outlining a vision for peaceful coexistence between the United States and Russia. It is featured prominently in Oliver Stone's film, JFK, and is worth watching, and you can do that on, I think, on YouTube, dear listener. Kennedy negotiated a peace with the Russians during the missile crisis, and at the time of his death, he was making overtures to Fidel Castro and also beginning to withdraw troops from Vietnam. Regarding Vietnam, more and more support for the notion that JFK would not have escalated the conflict has emerged since this thesis was, was first developed by Peter Dale Scott in the 1970s, and then more extensively by John Newman in his 1992 book, JFK and Vietnam. JFK was the user of back channels for sensitive communications. In negotiating with the Soviets, messages were passed back and forth between Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin or other Soviet officials to other members of President Kennedy's official family. The overtures to Cuba were made through journalist Lisa Howard and also through Ambassador William Atwood. 
It's been argued that Attorney General Robert Kennedy worried that such talks would leak and embarrass his brother on the eve of his 1964 re-election campaign. But the president encouraged Atwood to pursue the matter. Ravenwood notes that the leaks of General Flynn's communications with the Russians and their consequences show that RFK's worries were perhaps well-founded. The article goes on to draw comparisons between Kennedy trying to make peace with the Soviet Union and the fact that Trump, to say the least, is not hostile to the current Russian government, which this correspondent always thought was a big plus when he was making noise uh, last summer. But the article goes on to quote, the article then goes on to quote Glenn Greenwald, who is noted can hardly be accused of being a right-wing Trump shill. Greenwald said recently, the CIA and the intelligence community were vehemently in support of Hillary Clinton and vehemently opposed to Donald Trump from the beginning. And the reason was they liked Hillary Clinton's policies better than they liked Donald Trump's. One of the main priorities for the CIA for the last five years has been the proxy war in Syria designed to achieve regime change with the Assad regime. Hillary Clinton was not only for that, she was critical of Obama for not allowing it to go further and wanted to impose a no-fly zone in Syria and confront the Russians. Trump took exactly the opposite view. He said we shouldn't care who rules Syria, we should allow the Russians and even help the Russians kill ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So Trump's agenda was antithetical to what the CIA wanted. Clinton's was exactly what the CIA wanted, and so they've been behind her. And so they've been trying to undermine Trump for many months throughout the election, and now that he's won, they're not just undermining him with leaks, but actively subverting him. Well, we think Glenn Greenwald is onto something. Although we're not so sure we would agree with his premise that these contacts between Trump and Russia are not sinister. We think they might be. I'd like to take a slight detour from this article at the moment to um, cite something we're going to refer to in a minute, a, a video containing Peter Dale Scott. This is a good point to interject it because while it's clear that JFK was um, at odds with elements of his own deep state, and Donald Trump certainly appears to be now, a man who should not be left out of this discussion is President Richard M. Nixon. Nixon didn't get along too well with a lot of elements of the deep state, and we'd like to throw out the possibility that this might be a very good explanation for why five guys in rubber gloves got arrested in the Watergate particularly in light of the fact that all five had <laughs> had clear connections to the Central Intelligence Agency, and including the supposed uh, electronics eavesdropper mastermind, who was, in fact, a former CIA officer. At any rate, back to this most curious article. It notes that there's been a lot of scholarship and investigative reporting about the deep state over past decades. Most of it's come from the left. In the 1980s, Bill Moyers former Radio Parallax guest, I can't, can't resist, hosted a documentary called The Secret Government. It was based on revelations about the deep state that had emerged during the Iran-Contra scandal. One of the things they uncovered was massive CIA involvement with drug trafficking, something later investigated further by journalist Gary Webb, the subject of the 2014 movie Kill the Messenger. The only people who took Webb's allegations seriously at the time were people on the left some of whom had known for years that certain folks in the intelligence agencies were involved in the drug trade because of works like Alfred McCoy's The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia and Peter Dale Scott's Cocaine Politics. Scott once remarked that when the U.S. was involved in covert operations in Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 70s, we had a heroin epidemic on the continent. 
in the 1980s when some of the same people were involved in a covert operation in Central America, we had a cocaine epidemic. That's not a coincidence. The article notes that today, liberals and leftists who have been historically opposed to the nefarious machinations of the deep state find themselves in a strange situation, which seems to present itself as a choice between rooting for Trump, whom they loathe, and rooting for the cocaine-dealing, possibly Kennedy, sniping CIA, between a crack rock and a hard place, as it were. The left hates Trump because... They think he's a racist and a tyrant, but those in the deep state who oppose Trump do so not because they're champions of peace and equality, but because they want war with Russia and Iran. The article then goes on to quote Peter Dale Scott from a recent article adapted from his book, The American Deep State. Scott takes a nuanced view in which he distinguishes between two factions within the deep state, which have coexisted for a long time. He writes of an old division within big money, roughly speaking, between those trilateral commission progressives, many flourishing from new technologies of the global internet, who wish the state to do more than at present about problems like wealth disparity, racial injustice, and global warming. And those Heritage Foundation conservatives, many from finance and oil, who wanted to do even less. It's an enduring struggle between, quote, America firsters and, quote, new world order, quote, globalists, pitting through nearly all of this century, referring to the 20th century, the industry-oriented, e.g. National Association of Manufacturers, against the financial-oriented, e.g. the Council on Foreign Relations, two different sources of wealth. The article then goes on to describe these same divisions of the wealthy elite existing during the Kennedy administration, noting that at the time, right-wingers from the oil industry, such as H.L. Hunt and Clint Murchison, were some of the main proponents of the America First philosophy. They were against globalist organizations like the United Nations and the Council on Foreign Relations. They thought they were too communistic. Since American industry and manufacturing were more powerful in the early 60s than they are now, it follows that this America First wing of big money was more powerful and influential then. It is perhaps an irony that while capitalism ultimately prevailed against communism in that great ideological battle of the 20th century, it was nonetheless New World Order globalism and not America First nationalism which prevailed in American governance. In Peter Dale Scott's view, Trump is not an outsider or opponent of the deep state, but rather representative of this other wing of big money, which comes from manufacturing and especially from oil. Thus, the attacks on the party of Davos, the globalist wing of the ruling elite, are not really populist in nature, but rather merely coming from the other wing of the same ruling elite. There's a lot of wisdom in all of that, and we think we're going to leave it there from that article. We would encourage you, dear listener, to read it in its entirety. It is entitled, Trump, JFK, and the Deep State, from the UNS Review, article by Jack Ravenwood. I think in the 8 to 10 minutes we have left, we're going to uh, basically play for you a video, which you can view in its entirety online, and we definitely um, ask you to do that, dear listener. At this point, we'll refer you to the interview they conducted with Peter and start out by asking him to read about his description of the deep state. I quoted a British definition as the embedded anti-democratic power structures within a government, something very few democracies can claim to be free from. And I think that's a good starting point, but 
because of the CIA Wall Street connection, I think you have to look behind those structures that are embedded in Washington or on the margins of Washington and think of why they're there. And it was Alan Dulles right after World War II who uh, was actually designated to draft a, a, a charter for a CIA. And uh, he was doing all this while he was still a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell. And eventually as the CIA expanded and they created something much less remembered but more important, which was the Office of, uh, oh, help me here. It's the Office of Policy Coordination. The Office of Policy Coordination. Yeah. It's such a polite little name, really. Right. What does that mean? Nothing at all, really. But in fact, (laughs) all of the covert operations that we associate now with the CIA didn't begin inside the CIA. They began with something that was created by the White House to deal, the original problem was presented by the Italian elections in 48. The Russians were putting money behind the Communist Party. And so a decision was made, actually made in Wall Street, in Wall Street that uh, we should back, America should back the other parties. And that was done by the CIA, but they felt this wasn't really what the CIA was set up to do. So the next summer of 48, they created the Office of Policy Coordination, and that very quickly became very huge and very dirty, working with the mafia in France to uh, beat the communist uh, trade unions there. Um, and eventually it got so out of control, they said, well, this, we have to get this under control. That's when Alan Dulles went to Washington, uh, took a job in the CIA to bring in the uh, old OPC, Office of Policy Coordination, which then became the CIA's Department of Plans and later Department of Operations, and that's the, the CIA that most people think about, but it, it began outside the CIA, was supposed to be brought in to be controlled, but I think more of the reverse happened. I think that the OPC people became the dominant people, hmm. and, and uh, the poor, in, the, the intelligence analysts, a lot of them have left the agency as refugees, people like Ray McGovern, very good people, who um, who were trying to do very good intelligence, but whose intelligence was increasingly overridden because they didn't fit with the projects that people had. That was particularly the case with Casey. I would say when Casey became the CIA director, that was the triumph of the uh, the covert operations mentality over the gathering of intelligence in the CIA. And that is, if we're talking about, in practical terms, why we're talking about the deep state and headlines day after day after day now, mm-hmm. it is those beltway agencies and probably the CIA in particular. For those who maybe don't remember, Bill Casey was the CIA man that Ronald Reagan put in charge of the agency. And there's some like Mr. Ambiner that might claim that after the Pike and Church committees, they were reined in. But um, again, how do you explain the war in Afghanistan? But let's not visit that again. At any point, the subject of leaks in the government is uh, part of the controversy going back and forth right now. 
who's doing the leaking and why. And at this point, let's resume that tape of the interview with Peter Dale Scott at darkjournalist.com. I would say that uh, it's very, very normal for people in Washington to leak. And uh, it's, you know, if somebody irritates them, like Edward Snowden, and does the same thing. Well, he's a traitor because he's no longer in the government. He's a <laughs> traitor. But he was doing it in the public interest. And now here you have all these people in the CIA who are leaking things. And they're also being defended by the media, but they're doing it in the public interest. They haven't actually defined to me very clearly why what they do is okay and what Edward Snowden did was not okay, although nobody has ever accused Snowden of doing it for money or for power or anything like that. He wrecked his life. Uh, he did it because he thought that the American people should know they were being spied on in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Right. Um, anyway, we're not here to talk about Snowden, but my point is that this leakage is normal and what is abnormal right now is that they're leaking things about the president. Usually the president and the CIA are on the same page. But, it, you know, Trump campaigned against Washington. He said he was going to drain the swamp in Washington. And Steve Bannon has since said he wants to deconstruct the administration, administrative agencies. So they're fighting back. And that is... They're fighting the president, and that has suddenly, it really has started more on the Trump side, I think. They, Trump, Trump supporters, Trump hasn't used the term, but some, some of his, Roger Stone, some of his supporters <coughs> have used the term and said that Trump is battling the deep state. And so the, 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 the press, in an extraordinary way, uh, suddenly the deep state has become something you expect to see in a headline almost every single day. Now, is that at all surreal for you? Um, well, I mean, I've always seen it. I've always seen the deep state there. But yes, to see it, to see it being mentioned uh, is uh, surprising for me. Uh, it actually, you know, it, it, the New York Times back in 2010 said they had a, a, a news story on the, the memes, the things talked about in 2000, the new memes. And one of them, they said, was the deep state. Right. But you see, that wasn't talking about America. Right. We had Mubarak being forced from power in Egypt, and the Arab Spring was going on, so they could sort of look at a deep state operating in other countries. Uh, but not here. Now, in one of your books, Cocaine Politics, you do talk about this relationship between the media and the CIA. And you had a term in there, PAC journalism, uh, that I think we should really get into right here. The CIA inspired stories to deny that the CIA had anything with drugs. Right. And we actually now have the documents where the CIA said they had to contact their assets in the media, which they document admitted that they have. And we, we don't have a document saying the same thing about what's going on now. But when you see the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the LA Times, all of them, even on the same day, uh, saying uh, that there isn't a deep state in America, <laughs> 
then I take that as a kind of evidence that there is a deep state in evidence because these people are being inspired to do what they're doing, or let's say they're doing a favor for the CIA because the CIA does so many favors for them, makes them important journalists because they can, they are the people who leak the, who receive the big leaks about what's going on in Washington. Anyway, that about does it for today's program. I do want to rag on the Oakland Raiders going back to Las Vegas just a little bit, but maybe today's not the day. It'd actually be fun to take a look back at the sordid, disgusting history of that organization from uh, <laughs> from the evil Al Davis to his son. Take a look at all of the communities in this state that they have built and, and manipulated and, and lied to, including, of course, Oakland, but not today. That about does it. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Because of some time constraints, it appears that we will not be producing a program next week, but we'll try and see you the week after. How's that? Queen to ride on silhouettes in pain.
that I ever took a glass and she will cut me up and make her pictures out of my blood and I will be forgotten like parts of a story. <laughs> <laughs> 